I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 40 on Lynn Carter's The Warrior of World's End. I am Jeff. And with me today is the silver-maned Hoy. Hello. Good to be back. And with us is Howard Andrew Jones, the editor of Tales from the Magician's Skull, and the author of For the Killing of Kings, Pathfinder Tales, and The Chronicle of Sword and Sand. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, it's great having you on the show. Tell us a little bit about your history with Appendix N. I uh, I found it in the original form. I'm 50, so I was uh, I was cracking open that original Dungeon Master's Guide with Appendix N in it, and I went uh, searching for the local library. And, of course, the local library didn't have most of that awesome stuff in it, unfortunately. Um, when I went the first time, they had, like, the last couple of books of the Chronicles of Amber. Uh, they didn't have any Robert E. Howard. Uh let me think. I think I found, yes, I found Swords Against Death at the local used bookstore. And I found some uh, The Chronicles mm-hmm. of Quorum at the local used bookstore. But it was uh, Swords Against Death that really blew my mind. And then when my friends had turned out had a copy of um, the first few books of The Chronicles of Amber. Between Swords mm-hmm. Against Death and The Chronicles of Amber, uh, my mind was blown. I'd been a, mostly a science fiction reader to be honest, up until that point. But then I, then I loved fantasy. And as it turned out, the more and more, the more and more deeply I read into Appendix N, the more I discovered it was actually sword and sorcery flavored fantasy that I liked best. Now, I'm curious, were you seeking these books out specifically because they were listed in the Appendix N? Were you using that as your, as your kind of, your guide? Or were you seeking these out anyways? No. Well, I mean, I was sort of curious about it. I remember when I was very young, my mom had been taking a college class where they were reading science fiction and fantasy. And so she'd, uh, she'd read The Hobbit, and she read it out loud to me. I think I must have been uh, six or seven. So I was already into fantastic stuff. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to find out more and what better place to look than the listings at Appendix N. Unfortunately, like I said, the local library didn't have most of that cool stuff. Yeah. And you didn't have an internet to track these things down. And we were lucky to have one used bookstore in, in my town. So is it fair to say that this ultimately led into your current career and, and <laughs> <laughs> everything else that's, that's happened? Uh, it, it was certainly instrumental. I know that role-playing surely was. Uh, I, I always love to tell stories, don't get me wrong, but uh, I, was, I was pretty much the default game master. or you know We were playing D&D, so I was the dungeon master right? for years and years and years. And when I'm with the group, I'm usually the game master. I just love telling the stories, and that... I guess thinking about gaming and plotting adventures uh, really pushed me to think about story all the time. And, and how did you actually get int- introduced to Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, you know, because you mentioned you had the, the Dungeon Masters guy. Oh, that, it was it was everywhere at the right. time. This was the this was the seventies, right? right? right. Uh, we were in junior <laughs> high. Everybody was playing it. Hey, check out this new game! Right, right. You know? <laughs> and did you come directly to Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, or were you coming to you know one of the basic sets or original or? 
Uh, no, um, some of my friends had uh, basic, and I, I was always a little confused by that. It's like, oh, I don't want to play right. basic. But then I read some of the books later. It's like, well, this isn't actually basic. It <laughs> it was just confusing to right. us, honestly. It was never sure. completely clear. Right. No, I mean, but we, yeah, we, we were playing advanced, I guess, right. advanced. Right. right, and then we just always have to think about: well, is expert more advanced than advanced, or is it less advanced than advanced? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 that's awesome right. they should have a new version because it's called yeah basic D. &D. <laughs> <laughs> all right so this week we're reading and discussing lynn carter's the warrior of world's end uh so let's go ahead and discuss the the, the versions that we're working with today so hoy which copy are you working i with? have the daw uh original paperback i don't think there's actually more than one until Wildside actually printed it again um, but I could be wrong about that. And then um, I just saw that an ebook came out of this about what two weeks ago, or maybe a month ago. So that's pretty exciting. And yeah, you're right. I'm actually I'm looking at the internet the internet speculative fiction database, and you're right. Yeah, other than Daw in the '70s, it was not in print again until 2001 with Wildside. So I have the uh, I had the entire run from Daw at some point, and they may still be in the uh, basement waiting to get organized. But, uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't lay hands on it. So I had to get a copy through interlibrary. Uh -huh. Okay. Very cool. And was your copy the, the original DAW paperback or was it the wild side uh, press from 2001? No, it was not the cover you're holding up to me with the red. It was a, uh, it was a, I think DAW must have done different editions. Okay. That's possible. So the cover that I am holding up this red cover here. The cover art is by Vincent DeFate. Is that how we say his name? Do you guys know? I always said DeFate, but I, you know, what do I know? DeFate? <laughs> DeFate. Yeah. Okay. So it might be Rich, It might be Vincent DeFate. It might be Vincent DeFate. Yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, but we've we've got on the cover the Bazonga bird yep. and Ganelon flying high atop it. And we've got the Sky Islands and the uh, the winged Feigles floating in the background with the giant bloated moon. It's a pretty cool cover, and it's actually very specific to the text, mm -hmm. which is cool. Right. And um, he was known as really a science fiction artist. So, I mean, he did some fantasy, but I guess this book is a good crossover point between science fiction and fantasy. Um, because oh, he was definitely. definitely known for doing a lot of, like, really cool metallic space stations and that kind of stuff like that. Um, he also did the um, your copy way back when of um, Hero's Journey. Oh, okay. Yes, he, yes. Yeah. So... So we must have pronounced his name before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I was just more um, um, confident in whatever my pronunciation was at that point than I am today. There we go. All right. And looking at the back cover of this book here, it says, The farthest future as seen by the master of sword and sorcery. I see Gondwain as it shall be in the untold ages of dim futurity, near the time when the earth shall be man's habitation no more. And the great night shall enfold all, and not but the cold stars shall reign. The first sign of the end ye shall see in the heavens, for lo, the moon is falling, falling. And there shall come a man into the lands, a man not like other men, but sent from Galindil. The name of the man is Ganelon Silvermane, and this is the first of a new Marvel adventure series by Lynn Carter. 
Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> so before we move into what we think about the book itself, we'll quickly get into our Hygaxian word of the day. And the word that I selected for this week is... Haruspex. Haruspex. And Haruspex comes up in a few different places in the text, but there's um, there's a moment on pages 22 and 23 where it comes up three times in three different forms. It says, Therein resides the fortune tellers, astromancers, horoscopists, diviners, horospices, and all such persons who followed the more mundane and divinatory arts. Then on 23, it says, but in the shabby little avenue of the seers lived Polesco's crony, a haruspex named Slunth. And then in the next paragraph, it says Slunth had studied haruspexy at the Collegium of the Sacred Sciences and Divinatory Arts in the Great Veladon of the coasts of the Third Lesser Inland Sea. <laughs> and haruspex, according to the internet, is an, um, an a religious official who interpreted omens by inspecting the entrails of sacrificial animals. There you go. So there you've got haruspects. The Romans, I guess that was a, a Roman thing, right? They used to do before any major, uh, major events. I guess so. So let's dive on into the library then. Uh, starting with you, Howard, what did you think of this book? Well, as a book, it, it would make a great role-playing campaign. Yes. <laughs> How is it as a book? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's vivid and colorful and full of great imagination. Unfortunately, it's, uh, the characters are pretty bland and uninteresting, and the plot is kind of just stitched together event to event without a whole lot of, uh, whole lot of care. <laughs> but the scenes, one by one, are actually you know pretty yeah. cool. I, I, as I was reading, I couldn't help thinking, you know, if I'm running this as a campaign – I bet my players would be getting a blast out of this, mm -hmm. right? So it's fun. He always has fun with what he's doing. And I think it can be fun for the readers, but you really have to turn off your brain and the characters are so right. flat. Yeah. I was struck by, as you say, that's a sense of fun because I did feel that there was a big contrast to the first book, which is the last book chronologically, which is, um, which it was giant, giant of world's end. Uh, yes. Yeah. Because uh, that one had that sort of more doomy feeling. And this is really Ganelon as sort of tabula rasa, sort of almost like, you know, a comedic oaf when he comes out, you know, and then he's, 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 it's the, it's the, uh, the youth of Ganelon, right? And so he, he becomes formed in some way in the story. But as you say, it's very episodic, but it does almost resemble like having a discovering your character in play. I guess we could take that into the gaming hut, but, uh, you know, discovering your first level character. It's like, oh, I guess he's like this, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, Hoy, overall, how did you feel about this? Um, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it, and I think probably for much many of the same reasons that Howard cites. That again, it's just that sense of fun individually. It does not hang together in any meaningful sense of the word. Um, yeah. But you know, I guess I'm sort of used to sort of um, since we've been on this project, sort of um, picaresque fiction. So it's an attempt to do picaresque, but it's not a very um, thought out attempt to do picaresque, I guess. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. It's almost like, hey, I'll tell you this little story and then I'll tell you this little story. Um, I did see an interesting little, um, I just what I was wondering about the, the dedication. He said for John Boardman, who wanted some more. So it seems like uh, Lynn Carter didn't really have any intention to return to the world's end 
initially after that first book he wrote, because that was literally the end of the story, right? Yeah. Um, but John right. Boardman, I did a little digging, was a sort of early uh, super fan and editor of, um, I guess, APAs back in the day. And he was... Um, what does APA like stand early, for? Uh, Amateur Press Association. Okay. Or, um, so he wrote some... I, I haven't found any of his articles, but he did write some fairly early articles on in, in that late 60s, 70s era about sword and sorcery, Robert E. Howard and others. So I guess there's in that circle, which Carter was moving of that thin line between being a super fan and then being a published writer. And that was maybe a little bit easier to do until eBooks came back around where, you know, people could move between those two worlds. Yeah. Uh, so that was my impression. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like it's a lot of fun. I know that, so far from the reading that we've done, this is episode 40. So we've had 39 books that we've read prior to this. And Giant of World's End was is is my least favorite of the 39 books we had read prior to this one. <laughs> so I didn't have high expectations for this. I will say I enjoyed this one a good deal more than Giant of World's End. Mm-hmm. I thought it was definitely very fun, very playful. I agree that a lot of the characters are very two-dimensional, although I did find that the character of the illusionist was pretty fun and had some very kind of um, some kind of silly fun moments that I did think kind of he had a little bit more life life breathed breathed into him right. than certainly uh, the Nitrix did or Ganelon himself. They were both right. pretty two-dimensional. What I do really think is successful about this particular novel, though, is Lynn Carter is somebody whose reference points were really on point. You know, as the editor of the Adult Ballantine series, he's clearly somebody who really knew his stuff going into writing this, and he was wearing his his influences heavily on his sleeve, and sometimes too heavily. You know, his 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 homages to Dying Earth and the Jack Vance worlds are a little heavy-handed at times, especially he's got a character named Fricks, and we've got Ferks in the the eyes of the overworld. Um, all of the stuff about the bloated sun versus the bloated moon, you know, it's all kind of the same thing too. Um, you know, he's got the character in the beginning, in the beginning of the book, he's a periapt seller selling um, kind of fortune telling amulets, which is exactly what Kugel's doing in the beginning eyes of the overworld. Um, at one point, somebody's talking about making life in vats, which is also very dying earth. Mm-hmm. Um, very turgen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also, it's it's not just Vancian, too, though, because he also, there's another moment where the illusionist needs to go and collect thunderbolts from a mountaintop, which is also something the witch does in... Uh, in King of the, Elfland's Daughter. Thank you, King of Elfland's Daughter. Yeah. So he's taking a lot of stuff from a lot of sources right. and do- doing it kind of shamelessly, but also in a way that I think is it's it's fun and rewarding if you've read the other stuff to see where this is coming from. Mm-hmm. Ganelon isn't his uh, name either. Do you know where he got that from? No. no. That's uh, Henry Kuttner's uh, The Dark World. Ah, okay. Yeah. And that's... Uh, that's a touchstone for Roger Zelazny as well. And uh, I believe it's the third Amber book. He mentions, he mentions that. And it turns out that one of the secondary characters in the first Chronicles of Amber is also Ganelon because okay. he, he dug that character. So that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. I definitely, I've not read any Kuttner yet. And so far with, with Zelazny, I've only done Jack of Shadows in the first Amber book. And I guess there's this, this a feeling, a little bit of an Oz feeling too. And I know that Lynn Carter also wrote some Oz books that were not published until after he passed. 
Um, but oh, there's really? definitely I didn't a few. Know that. Yeah, uh, and um, so I, I, Carter was definitely very eclectic, and, and he had really drew in a lot of interest. Actually, I'm actually kind of interested. This there is, uh, I don't want to necessarily lump you in the same, uh, 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 put you in the same boat, but he is Carter is a fan, and then he becomes an editor and a writer, and so I see some career parallels between his career and, and yours, Howard. And I was wondering if you could sort of maybe speak to that. Well, sure. Um, I think. I think that uh, if you're in love with the genre, you you get in. Uh, mm-hmm. You find some way to do it. You find some way to share with other people. And one of the ways you can get in is to edit. And if you think about story all the time, uh, you can write, but you can also edit. I, I think it's kind of a, a natural thing. And yeah, I understand. It. I understand exactly where he was coming from. Right? He he loved the stuff. His love for the material just shines forth. I think. I think if he were alive today, he might be. Uh, self-publishing fanfic all over the <laughs> because some of the stuff it, I don't think he was trying to get a fast buck out of it. I mean, I know he was getting paid; he was ready to make the money. But I think sure. he was loving what he was doing. He loved Dying Earth. He loved Oz. He loved Robert E. Howard, but he loved Burroughs more. Right. Uh, and he loved Lord Dunsany clearly, and he loved Lovecraft. And sometimes he expressed that love by doing more of it. He wanted more of this stuff that he loved, so he sat down and he did his best to try and give the world more of it. Right, right. I think you're right. There's definitely never a sense of, even when he was doing the, the Conan stuff with Elspreg de Camp, it didn't feel cynical. And sometimes maybe it peeks through a little bit with Elspreg de Camp that he feel, like feels like he's a little bit above the material. And I never get that sense with Lynn Carter. No, I don't think he, <laughs> with Conan especially, he didn't quite understand what he was doing. Right. Uh, he, he just sees the fun part of it. He doesn't see the deeper layer. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think it was ever cynical. He loved, he loved it. He just wanted to get in there and have fun the way all these people whose work he admired had fun. Right. Right. And so in many ways, I think he's a good prototype again for us as, you know, game masters or, or any kind of gamer. Right. And then, so that there's no hard dividing line between, you know, being a fan, being an editor, a writer, a gamer, um, we can all make it work. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he was you know. so welcoming, too. Have you read any of the Ballantine adult uh, fantasy books where he wrote the introductions? Oh, yeah. Uh, a couple oh, of definitely. those. We read uh, Blue well, Star, in- right? Yeah, his introductions. Oh, yeah. He loved the Blue Star. Yeah. Uh, James Stoddard, uh, the writer James Stoddard once commented when he would get a book uh, from Lynn Carter, it was like the introduction was like getting a letter from an old friend who was an instructor. Would say, oh, here's what you here's what you need to notice about this book because he loved these books that he was introducing to you through the Valentine Adult Fantasy. Interesting, interesting. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I someday I would like to see somebody collect all of those introductions into a nice little. Uh, I guess mm-hmm. it would be an ebook at this point. Right, but if they're right. turning cool into short fiction. It would be nice to gather all those introductions and right. maybe his uh, imaginary world, which is a great history of fantasy up until. Uh, when it was published, like what, 1969, 1972? I forget when it right. came out. Right about there. And I, I pulled a little bit on that because I did a little, he was, he was like a big champion of some emerging writers like John Bolaire's at that point. Um, so yeah. I think he was definitely paying it forward too. I mean, he was, he was drawing on it and he was paying it forward, which I think is, um, again, more than you can say about DeCamp in some ways, right? So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And um, and so that maybe ties into with the work you've done with uh, I guess Tales of the Magician Skull, right? And then uh, were you in Blackgate? Was that was that you at? Yeah, point yeah. I guess yeah. technically I still am, although yeah. it's no longer a print magazine. I'm, I remain really close friends with John O'Neill, the guy that runs Blackgate. So I sometimes still blog over at the website. 
Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, and I, I think that's I think that's important. I think it's to 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 share the love, and you know, when we're first in it, we can't necessarily transcend our our um, our uh, influence. And maybe Lynn Carter never really wanted to, and so that's why he has that reputation of sort of being a derivative hack in his own writings. Uh, oh, that's is, that's well put. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I I don't think he ever wanted to transcend it. Yeah, and it's a it's a different approach because I think Michael Moorcock is a great example of somebody who obviously had a real love and passion for for the sword and sorcery genre, but he didn't want to merely emulate what he had read before. He wanted to kind of take what he had read before and turn it on its head while still operating within the same within the same genre. And I don't feel like Lynn Carter had aspirations that grand with his works. No, he wasn't much of an innovator. Mm-hmm. And how does that inform, um, you know, you as an editor, Howard, when, like when you were like, dealing with stuff, Tales of the Magician's Skull and, and earlier with Blackgate and stuff like that, when you're looking at stuff coming over, do you look at stuff um, purely on the craft? Does it have to show, you know, what does it need to, to, to do to sing to you and say, hey, this is something that's worth, you know, championing? Well, it's complicated because I don't want to publish um, – I want to publish something that feels like it was drawn from the same well that went to the same original well, uh, where there's a, a, a pulpy plot with lots of color and great world building, but a little bit more depth of character. So modernized in the depth of character and the kinds of characters and and new situations that we haven't seen before, not a retread. On the other hand, I want it uh, not to feel like it's drawn necessarily. Here we are. I know we're all gamers here, but it, that it's not drawn from gaming. Right. I don't mm-hmm. want people to go to central casting to get their characters. Oh, my guy's an elf, except he's he's a jungle elf. You know, <laughs> no. Come up with your own weird races. Come up with your own weird worlds. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. And I guess another because, brand of elf or dwarf is not enough. Right. 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 And, and I guess as much as coming back to the book, a second as much as it is, as it is derivative of his influences, we also can't take for granted that people had access to the stuff that he had. That you know. There weren't ebooks, and, and a lot of stuff wasn't in public domain. And so, in a way, he was sort of giving people the first taste, the first dose, um, and then that would maybe spark them to go and look for the the originals or, or you know the the things that were influencing him. Um, and both through his editorial work and in his actual writing, I think that's true. And it, it might be he wouldn't have the ire of um, maybe maybe he wouldn't have the ire of so many Robert E. Howard fans if the Robert E. Howard fiction had actually been in print for a long time there. It wasn't in print and all you could get was the pastiche and people were angry. Right. Me among them. Right. I'm feeling a lot more generous toward, uh, toward Lynn now. Right. Cause they're feeling, <laughs> there was the feeling that the original fiction was being suppressed, right? In, in exactly. In, yeah. Exactly. And I don't even think that was his fault. Right. He didn't have the wherewith. He didn't have the acumen to understand maybe that what he was doing wasn't as good, or maybe, maybe he even knew at some level it was good. But because he was doing it in fun, maybe he thought people wouldn't mind. And I'm starting to think maybe that's how we ought to look at him. Yeah, it's it's clearly not as good as Robert E. Howard when he's trying to write Conan, but he he wasn't he wasn't evil. Right, right, <laughs> you know right. What I mean? It was coming from a good place. Right. And that is one thing. I, I, with the Appendix N Book Club project that we're doing, we're sticking exclusively with paperbacks that were available prior to 1979. So that means that all the Conan we're reading are the Lancer and Ace paperbacks. And it is kind of a bummer that we're not reading because the one thing that I wish we were doing is I, I do love those those gorgeous. What are, is it? Is it 
who, Del Rey. Del Rey. Del Rey. Those Del Rey <laughs> books are phenomenal, and those are yeah. absolutely the way to read Conan. If if you're interested at a curiosity, you can certainly read the Elspreg de Camp and Lynn Carter collections, but you should really read the Del Rey collections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get the get the unaltered text. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. Yeah. So going back to the story for a moment here, I'm curious, both as an editor and also just as a general reader, what did you think about reading it from a 2019 perspective in terms of representation? Um, Lynn Carter never does particularly well with female characters. Mm-hmm. How's that for bluntness? <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I don't think Lynn Carter's unique in that way at all. No, no. But his, his women are always particularly bland. Um, yeah, th- th- there's other works by him that I, th- I think are worth merit and some that I'd even say, you know, if you're a sword and sorcerer fan, you ought to read them like a uh, lost world of time, I think is, is a pretty tasty one. Uh, it has some of the same flaws, but they're diminished because the story's stronger mm-hmm. and, and lost world of time, of course, was available in a paperback at this time. Uh, I, my friend Morgan Holmes posited that that is about as close to a Lynn Carter style, him establishing his own style as you could get. Um, and he's probably right. And there's a, there's two or three others that are about as good as Lost World of Time, but the rest of it's fairly derivative. Mm-hmm. Some of it's great fun, but they all have they all have similar problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because in his his nonfiction, as you say in the in the introductions to the Valentine, it's it's like a model of a clarity, right? And and it's pretty evocative. And yet his actual prose is is kind of a little bit muddled for lack of a better word right oh i think some of his prose actually can be really sharp and exciting uh i remember i recently reled what, what's the last one called giant of oh, giant. yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> the opening section of that is pretty dramatic and exciting oh, that, that battle, battle yeah sequence. that battle is pretty strong yeah right and when the the moon is falling and the final section of uh giant of worlds ends like wow that is really vivid uh, so he can do vivid what he can't do frequently is his character. character. Yeah. Yeah. And, and looking specifically at our sole female character, because we're, 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 we hint at the queen of red magic, but we don't really meet her. Really. It's just our, our nitrix, right? Or am I miss? am I forgetting anybody? Um, I think that's it. And then the wife, uh, the, the, his stepmother, basically his adoptive mother, who is the plant. Oh, woman, that's right. That's right. Woman. We do see her for a little bit. Yeah. But our nitrix here, you know, there are some very cool things about her. Like they, they on page one hundred seven, it says she's she's talking about why she like why she loves what she does, and she says knighthood promises a colorful and exciting life of action, such as every red blooded woman normally craves. Uh, and then another thing is she was talking about how she could only be sated for so long by um, by tournaments. She really needs like real battle <laughs> and. That kind of stuff is fun. You don't usually see women depicted in that way. But then things like that are then kind of immediately trumped by the fact that like on page 120, it says, Many folks would doubtless say that a lady knight is a strange thing, or an intelligent metal bird that flies, or a talking old geezer who covers his face with lavender smoke. So in that in that statement there, it's putting a warrior woman in the same category as a flying bird and an illusionist with purple purple haze over his face as though it's just as as just as wacky and weird uh so it does kind of diminish the uh badassery of (laughs) our (laughs) nitrix a bit yeah yeah by putting it in the in the in the gonzo category he's basically saying this woman warrior is gonzo because she's a woman warrior right 
instead of, well, you know, on one hand, we can't fault people for being from the era they are. Of course. On the other hand, some people from the era were reaching a little bit further with that. Yes, you know? absolutely. That is completely true. Yeah, that's my thing with with this project is I I'm not excusing people for how they were writing at the time or expecting 2019 sensibilities from them, but I can't shake the fact that I'm reading it from 2019 and that I'm seeing it from a modern perspective. And I think it's worth discussing that. Sure. Well, absolutely. And I know that there's a lot of wilting females in the stories of Robert E. Howard, but you know what? There's also some pretty badass warrior women. There are. Right, right. And, uh, and I think he would have written a lot more about badass warrior women if his Dark Agnes series had actually sold, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. He wrote with the market. Right, right. And I definitely think there's a lot. And, and, and in that same vein, when we talk about, um, I mean, this is there's not, uh, you know, issues of race in this story specifically. But when we bring him to Howard, there was always the, 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 the issue of, you know, there's no question that Lovecraft was a dyed in the wool racist. You know, he couldn't get over it. Howard was as racist as most people of his time, but he was also quite young. Would he, if he had lived, he would have lived into the 60s, into the civil rights movement. I mean, if he'd lived, you know, a normal, healthy lifespan, and he would have seen a lot of social change, would that have created or inflected his characters in in, in some meaningful way? And oh, I think it already does. When he writes his historical fiction, mm-hmm. he uh, frequently shows people from other cultures, and he depicts them as heroes or villains, not because of their culture, right. but just their character. Right. There was that one story and- we read, Jeff, about the uh, I guess it was the Zot of the Voodoo, who was like sort of rebelling against slavery, and it was in one of the Howard <laughs> horror stories. And so there's definitely a lot of com- there is complexity. It's not in every is that single Black character. Black Canaan. Black Canaan, yes, I think that was. Yeah, it. and for the record, for people who are listening to this, this isn't something we covered on the show. This was something we did in our in-person book club yeah. prior to starting the podcast project. Yeah. And so, people listen to I, me I like, would, I don't remember them discussing Black Cannon. We haven't yet. Yeah, right. Not on the show. I, I would even argue that uh, I don't think Howard was uh, uh, technically a racist. I think that he used words and terms in his stories and perhaps amongst his correspondence that people of his time and his region were using. Right, right. I mean, I would say that if, if, if without getting into deep sociological, in, this, in the sense that society was racist as opposed to uh, individually yeah. him being particularly racist. Because I would say reading Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard, the way that they describe black characters is they really do describe them as less than human in a lot of ways and talk about them as being ape-like. And some of those things, I I, I understand the error from where they're coming from, but also that that is racism. Yeah, from 2019, of course, what you were seeing is a shorthand way to describe an evil character from a different race in the pulp era. Sure. When he writes, when he writes like of uh, God, I can't think of the boxer's name. That guy's not uh, Tom Molyneux. He's a black boxer. Tom Molyneux, yeah. Ghost of Tom Molyneux. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a great story. Right. He he doesn't describe him as an ape. Right. Though. Right. Yeah. No, he's a he's a you know he's definitely uh, uh, sort of along the lines of like a John Henry uh, character. So no, I think I, I think uh, Howard. I mean, we've gone away from Carter, but Howard has definitely not given credit for the level of of nuance and, and complexity that he can imbue his characters with, which I guess is interesting because Carter that many years later, presumably in a more sort of, um, you know, with that much more literary history to draw upon really couldn't create a character that was vivid and memorable. And so that's interesting. Yeah. He just kept it light and frosty. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that's it's like watching a Hanna-Barbera, uh, sword and sorcery <laughs> right, right. cart, <laughs> which I think actually, <laughs> there was such a thing. uh, 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 Lynn Carter also wrote some, uh, Spider-Man episodes, right. That had some, uh, sword and sorcery elements into them. Yeah. Supposedly he <laughs> yeah. did. So, um, 
So I wonder if that was just, you know, that was something that Carter just wasn't interested in or who he was not capable of doing. I mean, he's, he's clearly in his introductions, he's quite, you know, understanding of, of what's going on in the Ballantyne adult fantasy series. And those are quite nuanced works. So I'm wondering why he didn't bring that to his fiction. Yeah. I wish, I wish he'd live long enough so that we could ask him these things, you know? Absolutely. So let's go ahead and start transitioning this over to the gaming side of the the discussion here. So looking at the fact that the World's End series is specifically stated as a source of inspirational reading in the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, why do you believe it's listed? I actually think I like – I know that you said that uh, the Giants was your least favorite. I actually like it a little bit better than this one. Um, I love some of the scenes of great color. Of course – they're ripped from, <laughs> they're ripped away from uh, the dying earth. Mm-hmm. But uh, sort of the mix of the science fiction and the fantasy, I, I don't think modern D and D players necessarily know how much science fiction there was. Sort of worked through the framework of the original D and D, just sort of mixed in. Right. I yeah, think that's been one of the ongoing themes of this sort of project is, is discovering that again, and. Um, so, I mean, I guess you had worked with the Pathfinder novels and, and, in, and in your own gaming. And have you brought this this mix back into your your you know your work, uh, both as just at the table and in in fiction? Well, when I'm running a when I'm running a fantasy game, I tend to go for a little bit of a gritty sword and sorcery feel. Um, my characters want more magic, so they end up they end up uh, it ends up a little bit of a weird mix, but. Uh, no, I don't work in too much science fiction. When I'm running a science fiction campaign, it's science fiction. When I'm running fantasy, it's fantasy. Um, as far as Pathfinder, when I was writing Pathfinder, yeah, I could have asked to write in one of the – I forget what the nation state is. There's one of them where they've got technology. Maybe there's even two of them. Uh, and instead, I wrote the first two Pathfinder novels set in uh, uh, sort of – more generic fantasy land not that it is generic but you know the elves and the dwarves Mm -hmm. and for the second two i wanted to do something completely different so i wanted to go down to the tropics and i tried to avoid using elves and dwarves as much as possible for those because i wanted something so different but again it's not science fiction it's it's fantasy Mm -hmm. do you feel like um it seems like yours is a little bit your your approach at least to gaming is a little bit more grounded because again sword and sorcery and less less gonzo as such um, would having read, you know, reread this is does it in any way tempt you to sort of attempt a Gonzo game? I mean, you sort of do something a little out of your wheelhouse in, in a sense. Uh, no, not really. Um, uh, I really love Talos Lance. I don't know if you guys have ever gamed with that system. Uh, I remember the books. It's sort of vaguely Vancian in terms of the, or maybe even more than vaguely. Well, they're they're quite, quite Vancian. Yeah. yeah, and and they have beautiful science fantasy. And I ran a campaign for years that was uh, based in Talisman and man, we have a blast. It, it is a uh, story hooks are on, there's multiple story hooks on every mm-hmm. page of, of, uh, of right. I believe all that material so, is available for almost all of it's available free now, right back on. on uh, indeed. Yeah. You can load yeah. it. You can download it for yeah. free. And uh, I, I think I even scanned one of the books in, in uh, from my own collection mm-hmm. for that, uh, for that download project. But yeah, we, we did a whole bunch of science fantasy. I don't want to make it sound like I've never run mm-hmm. it. But uh, in the last few things I've run, I was sort of working on some concepts for my stories. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was trying to keep it more of a, a pure fantasy mm-hmm. because it seems like today's readers really don't want to see that. Right. See that. Right. Mix. right. 
And um, uh, what, um, so you talked about workshopping. We don't, we definitely don't want session reports as fiction, but you talked about workshopping some stuff for your fiction. So what's your process there? Oh, um, I, I don't generally do the plots based off of uh, the campaign, but maybe the villain's evil scheme. Um, I, I'll tell you one. Uh, so we were, we've been running, we, I guess we still are. I technically never stopped the campaign. We've just been on hiatus for at least a year and a half. Um, my wife has this wonderful character who's a, a lizard warrior woman. And that character was so cool, I worked her into the, the Pathfinder, the last two Pathfinder novels. But normally, no, I don't take the plots. Uh, I, might take, uh, I might take the villain's plan. I might take uh, part of one adventure and turn that into a short story. But uh, I don't think... I would like to think my uh, novels don't read like game sessions right, right. because while game sessions are fun to read, if you're, uh, if you've played them, I don't think they're as much fun to read if, <laughs> if you weren't right. there. It's like that, uh, what Tolstoy description of a ball. It's only interesting to the person who was actually there. Right. <laughs> you can only understand. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So while you guys were reading this, were there any moments that you thought, man, I would love to use this in my gaming, or this would be a fun thing to lift and turn into something else in my own fiction. Um, I kind of liked the ghosts that had died of the laughing plague. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Hoy? Um, I like the, I mean, it's kind of goofy, but I actually did like the Bazonga word as, as goofy as it is. I, I like the Absolutely. idea. I like the idea of um, a lot of times with fantasy, you're a little bit limited geographically, right? Cause you're, you've, you've deliberately put yourself in the box of medieval level of technology, right? Um, unless you have teleport spells, which then sort of starts making it a little bit more like an X-Men game, right? So here you have a mode of transportation, but the mode of transportation has a little bit of its own mindset and quirks. Um, and um, so that was fun. The actual sphere that the illusionist was flying in, that was funny because that he couldn't hold Ganelon's weight and it started just like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> losing its charge after a while. Um, totally. So. And both of those are great examples of like finding a way to kind of incorporate that kind of technology into your game in a quirky, silly way that also has limitations and drawbacks. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't just give them a flying machine. Right. <laughs> Because that's a flying machine that just works indefinitely. Like that's just too easy and there's not a lot of fun or flavor there. Right. So I I think one of the things that I really dug is, I mean, it it included a lot of the kind of monsters that we see in the, in the monster manual. We've got wyverns and gins and wraiths and nixies and things like that. But um, he just had some really fun kind of creations of his own. In addition to the bazonga bird, we also had, uh, for example, the gyrofont. Right. Which I love in the glossary because in the back there's a glossary and it describes the gyrofont as a species of tomb dwelling, grave robbing, soul devouring lobster ghouls. (laughs) (laughs) And that doesn't even reference the fact that they glow in the dark, have huge pinchers and also can teleport through time and space at will. Right. And so there are some truly bizarre creatures. Right. And the gyrofont is basically the butler for the illusionists and just, you know, shows up from time to time and, you know. <laughs> well, there we see one of Lynn Carter's strengths, right? I, I spent a lot of time discussing his weaknesses, but he can really do some vivid, creative, wild stuff. You're like, wow, this is so cool. I would love to use that in a campaign. Absolutely. You know? 
And also, like, there were some things that I really dug as well, where he would just kind of bring up, like, just silly stuff, but like bird horses or the the scarlet riding lizards. Right. Like, it's just, it's it's a it's a very shorthand kind of silly way of just telling you, like, the world that they live in is not our world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still, you can, you can, it, it's similar enough that we have these kind of analogies we can work with, but you just throw the word lizard or bird in front of horse. And now suddenly, you know, it's just slightly different in a way that makes it kind of more fun and interesting and flavorful for the kind of, for the kind of world you're creating. Mm-hmm. Sort of like the last airbender right, cartoon. Right. Yeah. And I also think he does a really great job of working with what what a lot of gamers now refer to as um, as Gygaxian naturalism. But there's a lot of like, if this existed in the world, how would this affect the rest of the world? And I also think Lynn Carter is good at exploring that kind of stuff. Like how, um, I forget who's doing it, but there's some like king or emperor or somebody who's gathering all of the diviners together to find out how this battle's going to go. And it's like, that makes sense. If you've got a place where you've got lots of divination in your world, then yes, bring in all the diviners and have them tell you how the battle's going to go. It's just little little details like that I just kind of thought made his world feel more alive and vivid. And, and realistic, uh, if you know what I mean by, by that. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, that's that's right, to be right. respected. I kind of like the Indigons who are kind of like locust-like almost, right? You know, these quasi-anthromorphs who came and just like everyone was worried. Wait, who that... are these? I'm not remembering these. So those were the people who were, they were coming down from the north. And, and this is where Gan, uh, Ganelon makes his bones at, in the army because he, he fights off the Indigons. And the people like, oh. right, you know, at the beginning, because they were like, everyone's getting drafted into the army and, you know, uh, his adoptive parents are all worried about that. And so the Indigon's like, oh, if they get, if they don't, if they're not stopped here, they'll turn here and just like, you know, hoard, go through our kingdom. And, um, and, and it's a thing that happens on cycles. So it's almost like a seven year cycle with locusts. Right. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, yeah. In- Another thing I really loved was how um, the cities just always had these like completely absurd and random laws that were constantly in place. I love how the heretics in this in that one city all had to wear the giant boards that said like "I am a heretic. You you cannot you you, you cannot listen to a word I say. I'll poison your mind or something <laughs> like that." Right. And as they're walking through the streets, they're like ringing a bell and like "unclean, <laughs> unclean" as the heretics are walking around. Right. That's, and that's, in that same one, Ganelon gets arrested, and one of the counts against him is for uh, breaking the speed limit because he was running too fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that which cracked me up. You can see his love for Vance and yeah. stuff like that. One of the things Definitely. I love about Vance is just his amazing facility with societies and cultures mm-hmm. because Vance's characters can be pretty flat. Right. I don't read it for his characters. I read Vance because of the amazing world building that drips off of, you know, nearly every sentence. Right. And, I mean, yeah. literally in a sentence. And he can just describe Vance as like always a big thing for like hats. Like sometimes the hat will suddenly say something about the society. Like, you know, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's actually kind of funny too. Just even having that, just like, just talking about like one thing, at least as a game master that I've tend to forget to talk about is like the colors of stuff, right? Or like, hey, this thing smells like this or it sounds like this. You know, we just say, we kind of just get to the, the the action sometimes and, you know, start talking about game stats. It's like, oh, you come in here. This, it's a market. Well, let's make that market a little bit more vivid. Oh, they're selling, you know, these these weird fruits you've never seen. They're kind of shaped like, you know, corkscrews or something like that. I don't know. Um, just to give it a little bit more, um, you know, oomph. Yeah. You know, without going over that stuff is challenging to do. Yeah. You know, it's like in um, I've been running this new campaign and in the session before last, they were doing some stuff in a giant storm. And in this last session, they were doing something in a giant riot. 
And it's kind of hard to constantly keep remembering that like this thing is going on while they're doing stuff and it's affecting everything they're doing and doing my best to kind of keep that alive and at the forefront of the, of the, the players while they're making their decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, it occurs to me that I have a little essay uh, that Carter wrote about description. If you want to pause Ooh. real quick, I could run and get oh, that yeah, and great. share some of that. I should have had that handy. Sounds good. And while we do that, we'll play a message from one of our sponsors. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> hey, wait, we don't have any sponsors. <laughs> but if you would like to be a sponsor of our show, please send go. us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Right. And we'd be happy to insert a message from one of All our right. sponsors here. Don't ask that off, go. Cars for kids. <laughs> oh, geez. No. No. <laughs> Anything but cars for kids. Right. That's such a New York reference because, like, I was watching um, Kimmy Schmidt with my boyfriend, and they made some joke on Kimmy about Cars for Kids, and I could just see him blinking, and I'm like, oh, that's such a New York thing. (laughs) (laughs) Or, like, a tri-state area thing. Yeah, pretty much. Jersey and Connecticut will get it, but. Oh, us terrible coastal elites. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Ah, and he's back. Okay. So what I'm holding here is a book called Drillmaster, a guy named Poke Runyon. Now, I must confess to never actually having read this book. I purchased, I purchased, it, I purchased it because there's a long letter that Lynn Carter wrote to Poke Runyon called How to Create Fantasy Worlds by Lynn Carter. And it's full of how he looked at story construction, which I thought cool. I wish. Well, anyway, this is, this is pretty interesting stuff. Let's see. So he says, when I sit down to build a world from the magma up, usually I sketch out my map more or less designing it to serve the flow of my story and evolve names of people and places by a slow process. Hero names, and barbarian names are traditionally bisyllabic, but not all names should be the same length. A wizard, god or mighty emperor might have a long, complicated name. For variety, sprinkle a few longer names into the yarn. Let's see. What else do we have? (laughs) <laughs> also people most novels of this type have about 10 or 11 major characters on stage mentioned dozens of others historical characters and not all kings some of them saints poets conquerors artisans legendary or literary figures demigods and divinities have a certain character swear by a certain god so he's you know he's putting he's put great thought on this let's see if yeah. I can he, it seems like these are great dm tips you can completely reskin this essay for dungeon masters yeah exactly or adventure writers when I design a world, I try to use as close to 100 invented names as I can. One-third are people, including historical beings and gods. One-third or more are geographical places, and the rest are made-up critters. Birds, beasts, trees, monsters, supernatural beings like vampires, etc. Wait, there's one more section. Notice how Burroughs describes a hero. Just a few brief sketches. Tarzan is golden bronze like a Greek god. Fierce eyes under black mane. Moves with regal dignity and panther and grace. That's all. That's enough. Or John Carter, lithe and sinewy, his naked body clasped in the Barsoomian warrior's harness, crusted with badges of rare metal and glittering gems, gem-studded butt of radium pistol, rapier hilt, dagger, boots. Such descriptions are plenty. They should be repeated frequently. Key things are the phrasing. Conan has the same characteristics every time. Rough, coarse, unshorn mane of black hair. Eyes of smoldering volcanic blue flame under scowling black brows. Instead of speaking, he growls or grunts. Impassive, grim face, scarred and leathery. So what seems to me is that he uh, he clearly put a lot of thought into the visual aspects of all of this. 
and thought about how these things were structured before he started trying to right. do it. And he also put thought into the structure of the world, much as a game master would do with the names and things. And that's, that probably is a lot of the appeal that he had to Gygax in a sense, right? That Gygax is almost like, oh, this is almost like a, a kit almost that I can see. And sometimes with a more seamless writer, it would be harder to get under the hood. But to the extent that, as you mentioned at the very beginning, that Carter stuff would make a good game. It's, you can sort of see it's easy to pull out pieces in a way that might be harder to say with uh, Vance's fiction, because Vance is so much about the prose, right? Yeah. And also, I don't know if this is true. I think that I had heard somewhere that Gary Gygax and Lynn Carter's had become buddies as well. So I think a part of me had been like, well, maybe he's just on this list because Gary felt bad not including him in the list. But now that I'm reading this stuff, I don't I don't think that's true at all. I mean, obviously, he he has his chops from editing the adult Ballantine series. Uh, I'm sorry, the Ballantine adult fantasy series. Um, but I also think that the warrior uh, that the world's end series is a really great example of how you can take a bunch of your influences and steal them and use them and turn them into your own, which is exactly what D and D adventure writing is. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we should, Oh, you probably already mentioned it. Uh, one of the podcasts that Valentine adult fantasy doesn't mean that it's full of porn. Uh, <laughs> they, they called it the Valentine adult fantasy series in the late sixties and early seventies because fantasy was considered something that was for kids that's how yeah. new the fantasy genre was. They still had to distinguish, oh, this is fantasy for adults. This isn't Alice in Wonderland, Alice in the Looking Glass, Peter Pan, C.S. Lewis, right. The Hobbit. And, and yeah, to that extent that we have to give him and, and the Ballantines a ton of credit for sort of, you know, raising the game. And, and, and sort of, I mean, I know there was scholarship that was happening behind the scenes or within the community, but to bring it to the general public saying, hey, this is something worth looking at and preserving and and you know going forward with is is a you know i think something to do much, very much to link carter's credit yeah yeah i would agree with that so so one thing i noticed while reading is um one thing that kind of stood stood out as very D to me as well and let me let me know if you guys think this is cool or if this is just lazy but it does say on page 14 the the naked creature who certainly appeared manlike this is when Ganelon first appeared did not seem to understand the language spoken by the periaptist. This in and of itself is odd, for the same universal tongue is spoken across the length and breadth of Godwain. <laughs> so clearly there's the common tongue in Godwain. And it certainly makes things easy. It's like how Elsprague de Camp with the Harold Shea stories, when he when he goes through the dimensions, he picks up the uh, assumptions of the world he goes into and suddenly has their language. And in Godwain, we don't need to worry about them traveling great distances and there being a language barrier because everyone just speaks the same language. Is that lazy or does it kind of work within the framework of what this world is? Well. (laughs) Or both. (laughs) Considering that he was writing, what, 60,000 word fantasy novels, uh, he probably wanted to keep it simple. Although I suppose he could have had uh, a magic character with a magic translator if he wanted Right. Right. Sure. So he probably just did it for convenience so that he wouldn't have to worry about it or even worry about that along with the rest of the plot. And also, does the common tongue bother you at all in the D&D Pathfinder assumed worlds? The the idea of the common tongue? Well, it seems like, you know, if there's a basic region of the world, there's always going to be one language that people default to. The, The translators a couple of generations ago used to always learn French. Right. For instance. So it makes sense that there'd be some kind of base language that 
people would be expected to communicate with if they were travelers or merchants who right. journeyed afar. So I don't have a problem with that. But if it's the thing that everybody speaks. Right. Eh. right. This lingua franca uh, is useful. But to, as you say, like a universal language is a little bit uh, tricky. And actually, this is uh, for the first time I had a game last night. I was running a Yoon Suin game. Uh, we were talking about this before the show. And I actually decided there was there is a trade language in that region. But I decided the characters who are coming in didn't actually know that language at the very beginning. And so they're going to have to go through that communication process. Um, and it can be more of a hassle, but fortunately I'm playing with a very small group in this instance, so I think it, it works for the game. But yes, if you're playing a sort of more general open table type situation, you're not going to be wondering like, oh, I, I'm, you know, the elves only speak Sindarin and, and such and such. And that's, <laughs> it's just too hard for a, a con game, an open table game. And so it is a, a useful shorthand um, or it's something that you hand wave, but when you want to get under the hood about it, maybe it's not as elegant. So absolutely. Do you want to do you want to slow down uh, for this minutia, or do you want to get to the story? Right. And sometimes you can work the minutia into the story, and that will brighten the story, and the detail will help make it more interesting. Right. But sometimes you just want to get to the story, right, right. damn it. And I think you have to play yeah. to your strengths, right? T- Tolkien was a, a philologist, right? So it makes sense for that. And that's not Carter's thing, right? Carter is, you know, originally an advertising man, so he's very pithy, right, <laughs> in some senses, right? Um, yeah. And I know that Els Proctor Camp was quite a scholar in his own way, so he does talk a little bit about, you know, having something stand in for other languages, not to the extent of, you know, being you know, a Tolkien, but I don't think that, you know, Lynn Carter's in this case knows that this is not his strength, right. To, to make up a, you know, a whole background language out of whole cloth. He gives some funny names and that's enough to give, get that kind of shorthand. Right. Right. He just wants to, he wants to do the surface stuff. Right. And so I it guess it's it, to the extent of like, what kind of rabbit hole do you want to go down when you're doing as, especially as a game master in terms of your game creation, uh, your world creation, especially if it's stuff that the players might never encounter. Um, it still might be useful to you because maybe you as a game master have to believe in that world. So you might still do a lot of stuff that the players never see, but don't get angry about it if they never see it. <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. right. <laughs> so I think that's, I think there's a useful medium and you just have to know when to cut yourself off and say, okay, you know, it's not possible to know everything. Right? Definitely. All right. So this seems like we're, we're reaching a good point in the conversation where it might be time to start wrapping things up. But Howard, before we do, is there something you were kind of really wanting to talk about before we wrap this episode up that we didn't get to address? No, I, uh, this has been a lot of fun. I think we've covered all the points I wanted to hit. And I probably, uh, I probably drifted a little off topic there talking about Vance and Howard. No, no, I think it's, <laughs> it's all very much of, of a piece with this project. I think, you know, I think people will, um, you know, we'll find a way to, to find the individual books that most appeal to them. So, yeah. How about you, Hoy? Um, I, uh, am now willing to extend more credit to Lynn. I mean, I, for editorially, I always did, but as a, as a writer, I'm, w- I'm willing to extend more credit to Lynn Carter and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll c- encounter some more clunky, some clunky ones, but you know, I'm definitely, you know, willing to take a look at more of his work uh both in this series and in the various other series you know he has you know a sort of lost worlds Burzian series is on the mars marsian type series so i definitely will we're more willing to go to that although i do want to make sure i get to the source a lot of times before you know what i i agree and i think maybe i should i should address that myself and that is i already mentioned lost world of time if you like lynn carter stop by lost world of time uh, and also maybe uh, the Black Star, and 
I also remain very, very fond of the short story Zingazar, which is basically a ripoff of Dunsany's sort of Wellerin uh, plot-wise and structure-wise, but he does such a beautiful job of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's a minor sword and sorcery classic, to be perfectly honest with you, and it is now available finally uh, in a little collection of uh, his short stories. I think it's called the Simrana. Simrana. Uh, you can order it through Amazon. Right. That's his uh, Dunsany, uh, Dunsany series, right? Yeah. Right. It's, it's very Dunsany-esque, but I think, I think um, people have been unfair to that story. I think it's just a great read. Right. That's great. My, my one last thing is – it's kind of a silly thing, but I'm going to throw it in here anyways because it, it just kind of stood out for me, which is that there was a moment where Ganelon becomes this big hero in, in this town. And I forget, it was right after the battle – and after that, there were all of these women and men who were leaving notes for him to have illicit encounters <laughs> right. afterwards. And just the fact that like the fact that like homosexuality exists in the most passing, passing, passing of ways really just kind of made me like a little bit happy. And also, and this is very silly, but the the Feigl, those giant uh, those giant flying creatures at the Airmasters Road. He talks about them having like phalluses that are just like flopping around while they're flying. <laughs> and it cracked me up that like normally in the appendix and if ever we hear anything about a body part that is usually that is illegal if it's uncovered, it's just, we're just hearing about breasts. So actually hearing about a male body part, even if it's on a weird animal, also was kind of like, OK, Lynn Carter, I wasn't expecting you to go there with that. Um, and that's <laughs> kind of a, a fun, weird thing to throw in there. But I'll give you props right. for it. <laughs> Fair enough. I guess we will read more Farmer if we want more male members. Uh, Philip Jose Farmer. <laughs> 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 That'll happen. All right. So on that note, we can go ahead and wrap up. Um, Howard, it's been a blast having you on here. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, guys. Okay. And our next two episodes will be episode 41 is Elsprague de Camps, the Goblin Tower. And episode 42 will be Robert E. Howard's Conan the Wanderer. So, Hoy, how can people get in touch with they us? They can uh, email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, if you like the show or even if you have quibbles with the show, please uh, review us and rate us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And uh, please keep listening. Thank you. Great. And Howard, if people want to find your works or look you up, where should they look for you? Well, I'm at howardandrewjones.com is the easiest spot. And my new book dropped on the 19th of February for The Killing of Kings. So you can go to your local bookstore or your uh, local inbox on Amazon or Barnes Noble or indie bookstores or Powell's or I don't know, a couple of other places I've forgotten because you can order it from all of them. Fantastic. Order now. Looking forward to it. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>